You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have Chris Knight, the anthropologist who is here to talk to us about the history of humanity itself. So I'm going to first start with, since you're an anthropologist, and this is going to be a difficult question, and since anthropology is the study of human beings, what makes us human? Okay, so anthropology is the study of what it means to be human. Uh, and we only ask that one question, but it's, it's such, a, such, a, such a huge question. And here at University College London, where I work, we address that massive question in three or more different ways. But one is to ask what might it mean to be a creature closely related to humans, like, for example, a chimpanzee or a gorilla. Um, and many things are similar, of course, between us and chimpanzees, and many things are different. One of the different things is the way our eyes are shaped and designed. So we have two-way eyes. Our eyes, human eyes, we look into each other's eyes, don't we? And mm-hmm. we, we feel that when we look into each other's eyes, we're reading our friends' thoughts. We look into each other's eyes in order to see what's in the mind. And that's, that's made possible by the fact that our eyes um, are very informative and because we see the, the black um, iris um, against the white sclera. Um, and we can, we can infer direction of gaze from that structure. Whereas chimpanzees, they're like, we might say, Colloquially, they're like mobsters wearing sunglasses. They've got eyes which are dark. We just see the dark of the eye against a dark skin, and you've got no idea what they're thinking or what they're looking at. And that's probably because chimpanzees live in a very, what for humans would be, be a quite a, an unpleasantly competitive, even in many cases, despotic social system. And a, a dominant male chimpanzee really doesn't want you to know, doesn't want others to know what it's thinking. And because chimpanzees block each other's vision of their own minds that way, what that means is that they can't really be aware of their own thoughts. We we humans have self-consciousness. We're aware of our own thoughts, but we become aware of our own thinking, our own thoughts, through the mirror provided by those around us. So looking into somebody else's eyes as they're looking into our eyes generates this thing which we call intersubjectivity, which is the idea of a mind, which isn't just the brain. Our minds are way different from and bigger than our brains. And um, intersubjectivity means we, we are aware of our own thoughts. And more than that, the thoughts of those around us are part of our own thinking. We, we, you know, we, even without language, we're still fascinated by what, 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 you know, what we're thinking. Anyway, I, I won't go on about all that. Another way of addressing the question, what does it mean to be human, is to look at, at, what, at the past, the, the evolutionary past, and ask what it might mean to be homo habilis, or on Australopithecine or a Neanderthal. So we go into the past as we, as we can if we we're doing um, archaeology and paleontology. And of course, the third and perhaps most well-known way is what you're just now raising, the question of culture. We can look at cultures around the world uh, and uh, examine all the different ways there are of being human, all the different ways there are of caring for children, respecting the sacred, organizing sex and family life. Um, which is such an important thing to do, in, because otherwise we think that the way we 
in London or we in wherever, New York or somewhere, the way we do things is kind of the human way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's completely false. There's so many different ways. Um, for example, it's actually unusual in the world for a child to have um, an individual they can call mother or father. I mean, because they would have many different mothers, many different fathers, because they have a system called classificatory kinship where your where your mother um, is formally identified as your mother's sister. A woman will say, my sister's child is my child. So they won't use the word son and daughter to mean just their, if you like, their, their biological offspring, but one another's offspring and so forth. Now, okay, now you've asked about that point in the beginning of the book. One of the really interesting um, quotations in your book where you t- critique um, traditional, I guess, anthropology is, I'm just going to read from it. Admitting this at the outset, let me say that from my own political vantage point, virtually every primatologist and paleoanthropologist has been saying about human origins since the 20th century began addressing this topic has been wrong. Not wrong in detail, but utterly wrong on all major issues. I think that we would get nearer to the truth by systematically positing the exact opposite of what the functionalist and more recently the socio-biologist establishments have been telling us. So it kind of reminds me of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where they build a computer to ask, what is the ultimate question of life, universe, and everything? The answer is straightforward, 42, but they don't know what question. So I, I really like that idea of like how the question uh, itself is important. Can you talk about that set part? Uh, yes. Um... I, I do I do think, and I'm, I'm increasingly being sort of supported in this, that the, the whole idea, for example, that the natural way for humans to raise children is mummy and daddy monogamously attached to each other in the nuclear family, caring for their children and not caring too much about one another's children in, in, you know, in other parts of the, you know, the, the camp or the, the village. So that's, that's absolutely wrong. Um, and, I, and as I say there, I think it'd be probably more accurate to sort of turn things right upside down and say that the, the distinctively human thing which humans do is communal childcare. In other words, we look after each other's children and a woman really needs, if you haven't got the welfare state, uh, a woman, you know, <laughs> is, uh, bringing up a, a human child is particularly demanding. Human children are much more demanding burdensome, slow to mature, in need of high quality food and so forth than a chimpanzee baby. So being a, being a single mum would be extremely challenging for a, a human during you know, the, the evolutionary past. And so what did happen was that women in our case began living with mum, living with their own mum, therefore living with their own sisters. And the thing which makes us human in many ways is what's called um, alloparenting. That's called that's that's communal childcare. We are the babysitting ape. We are the, the ape where the mother trusts other females and eventually males, of course, in the course of evolution, to, uh, with, with your own baby. The chimpanzee mother would never dream of doing that. She very likely, if she gives her baby to somebody else to look after, even if it's a female, she's quite likely to um, kill it and even eat it. Yuck. So. <laughs> So, so that's why chimpanzee mothers are single mums. They just dare not let go of their of their baby for fear that it would. This is very interesting because um, when my mom uh, was pregnant with me, um, she uh, and my sister, she was actually in the U.S. But then Indian family traditions is always such that you have to go to your mother's house, and my grandma was really like upset that she was her only daughter wasn't going to come, 
And so she, but then like eventually, like after about two months, my mom was like, okay, I can't do this. And she, she went to India to have me. And so uh, I, I didn't realize that that was actually the natural way. <laughs> and it's not an Indian custom. <laughs> that's, really, that's very interesting, Isha. I mean, all hunter-gatherers right across the world, and this is very well known by specialists in, in the study of hunter-gathering peoples, a woman will, as she becomes sexually mature, she will not move away to have babies. She will stay with her mum. And um, at least for the first few years, um, so that's called matrilocal residence. And that's because a woman really needs some help with her first baby in particular. And the person she's most likely to get very wise advice from and help from will be her own mother. But of course, if you're staying with your own mother, uh, you're probably, if other, if your sisters are doing the same, then you're all together. So women would have very, very reliable support around in, in the form of their own mother um, and their own sisters to help with this hugely burdensome task known as childcare. So people often talk about how cooperation is what made us human, but the, the most essential form of cooperation is cooperation in raising children. That's the, that's the most demanding job anyone ever had is looking after a baby. Oh, yeah. Um, and that had to be cooperative. And that's what's forgotten by all the standard accounts, the ones I'm, I was criticising that in my book, in the first part of the book, because they all assume that the person you'll be with will be your husband. Um, and it's just not true. It's just, it just <laughs> and it, when I say it's not true, what I'm saying is that since I wrote my book, it's become pretty much the mainstream view now as a, as a wonderful um, figure called Sarah Hurdy, H-R-D-Y, wrote a book called Mothers and Others. And, and she's proven really, and everyone, pretty much everyone accepts this now, that we are the babysitting ape and, that, and, and then you have another whole body of theory called the grandmother hypothesis. Kristen Hawkes worked this one out, which is that women would stay with their own mothers so that grandmother, the maternal grandmother, would be a very reliable source of support for her grandkids. And that explains menopause. It explains why women live on very long, you know, several decades, a couple of decades perhaps, beyond the reproductive years. It's because what they're doing, there's, they're, you know, they, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have a baby just before you, you, know, you die but it makes a lot of sense to live on and support your daughter's um, babies. But the Darwinian logic of that doesn't work with sons. Um, it only works with daughters. There's only, you can have absolute maternity certainty, but with paternity certainty, that's much more problematic. And so in Darwinian terms, the grandmother hypothesis assumes that women are living with their own mother when they have their baby, the first baby at least. Oh, okay. So that's just turning everything upside down, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You heard it here first, folks. Historically supports Deadbeat Dads. So pledge your support by visiting our Substack. There you can check out all episodes of our podcast and subscribe to our newsletter. Go to historically.substack.com and subscribe today. Also, check us out on YouTube and Twitch with Late Nights with Lennon. Get commentary and trolling from 100 years ago by the absolute master of the form and see how little has changed. Oh, and Happy New Year's from your comrades at Historically. Anthropology can often just be colonialism in disguise. <laughs> well, it, it was in its foundation, and to a very large extent it still is, in my view, because even when you don't have colonialism, you still have these wretched things called development studies. What are they? And here the idea is that we anthropologists in the West have got to help to develop 
these poor people in other parts oh, of the world. I, no. <laughs> <laughs> You've helped too much already. <laughs> I wasn't sorry, but I'm very much in favour of development because, in fact, we definitely do in the West need developing. We need developing on a moral level, social level, family level, childcare level. There's so many levels where we indeed need to be developed. And it's these uh, the people that anthropologists have studied in the past that can teach us how to be human uh, in a way that really uh, we've almost forgotten in the West. So development is a very good idea, but it needs to be reversed. And, and in, I, I've, I'm part of a group called the Radical Anthropology Group over here in London, but we've got connections around the world. And we, we do reverse anthropology on that basis. We think that the main thing is to give voices to indigenous people to teach us what it means to be human and how to remember um, what being human is all about. I like that idea. And I don't even know where to continue because there's so much. Let's start with, there's like two ideas of evolution. One is everything happens gradually. And then there's, I guess, what I kind of like it to like the X-Men idea where once in a while, like evolution just um, skips and then just like kind of like accelerates. So yeah. when so you mentioned something called the human revolution. Can you explain yeah. what that is and how that uh, ties in with the traditional study, I guess, and how that differs from it? Okay, well, as you say, there's one version of Darwinian theory, which is that everything's very gradual and that continuity is maintained at every stage. And usually that implies that there's kind of nothing, nothing is ever really new. And so a lot of Darwinian gradualists who think that evolution is, always maintains continuity with the past, they would say that we humans, Homo sapiens, we are a species of great ape. And therefore, if you want to know how our ancestors lived and how we used to live in the past, you study chimpanzees and maybe bonobos and orangutans and gorillas, and you get a good idea. Now, there's another whole version of Darwinian theory, which was called punctuated equilibrium, which is the idea that the whole history of life on Earth consists of, yes, very long stages of gradual evolution, but every now and again you get a leap or a punctuation event or a, what's called a major transition. So the origin of life itself was a major transition. The origin of multicellular organisms, that's complex creatures, was a, was a leap. And there was many other leaps, maybe eight of them in all in the whole history of life on Earth. And the most recent of these uh, leaps or major events was the emergence of language-speaking Homo sapiens, which was a a break, because although humans are apes, there's no question about that, we are very strange apes, uh, and we've made some kind of breakthrough with language, with symbolism, with the idea that some things are sacred, which is the basis of all religion, and so forth. So that the idea of a human revolution is the idea that quantitative change at certain points culminates in a qualitative transition. And the, the classic example of that, of course, in physics is you heat up water, it gets hotter and hotter. But it doesn't just carry on getting hotter. At a certain point, it reaches boiling point and it starts to bubble and turn into steam. We make it colder and colder. It doesn't keep on getting colder. It suddenly turns into ice at a certain point, which is a qualitative change. So I'm arguing that the, the emergence of our species was one of those processes of gradual quantitative uh, accumulation of changes culminating quite suddenly in a, in a revolution. And I call it the human revolution. There's a bit more to say on that because... Um, in the period when I was writing in the 80s and, and 90s, there was quite a common idea that the human revolution happened 40,000 years ago um, and was basically happening in Europe 
and it was, it was the same thing, really, as what's called the Upper Paleolithic Revolution. That's the great explosion of art and culture in the Ice Age in Europe, which led to the production of those amazing cave paintings, for example, in the Dordogne and other parts of southern France and northern Spain. So the idea then was that the emergence of language and culture occurred simultaneously with the Upper Paleolithic Revolution. Now, that idea was a mistake. And my close colleague and friend, Ian Watts, was already telling me it was a mistake. And I made a few corrections to that in my book, but still the book wasn't sufficiently, I wasn't sufficiently aware because almost no one was at the time. But actually, everything that defines us as human is an African invention, really. And so to explain what I mean there, it was assumed, and the way they put it, would they say in the past, they would say, oh, yeah, all right. Yeah, we evolved biologically in Africa, but we only got we, our ancestors only got smart when they hit Europe 40,000 years ago. Okay, that to me sounds like somebody who wants to find an excuse as to why colonialism is morally okay. That's exactly it, yeah. <laughs> now, what, now, what it turns out is that actually art, language, culture, religion, kinship are all African inventions. And those inventions, if you like, call them inventions, you know, in other words, major social and cultural achievements mm -hmm. go back go back way, way, way before um, 40,000 years ago, way, way, way earlier than the Upper Paleolithic Revolution. In fact, we can see the beginnings of these processes of revolutionary change half a million years ago in Africa. And the evidence for that is um, the first archaeological evidence for art, which takes the form of um, ochre, red ochre, blood red ochre crayons, um, which were clearly used to produce sharp outlines of bright red colour on a smooth surface. And we now know that that surface would be the human body. So the first art was not painted on cave walls, it was painted on the body, and it took the form of what we nowadays might, nowadays might call cosmetics. But remembering that the word cosmetics is linked to cosmos uh, and is about unity and healing. So cosmetics was used in order to um, mark the body as sacred, and in order to, well, I, you could go, I, the rest of the book is largely about all this. It's about what was, what, why was art kind of invented and developed. But the, the main point I want to make now is that it was, it was in Africa that all this happened, not in Europe. And it was later extended to Europe. But, it, but really, we're all Africans. All people around the world are Africans by, by heritage, going right back. And um, language itself was an African invention. And more than that, it was, I would say if, if it was invented by anybody, it was invented by black African women. Okay, so this is actually very interesting because I read your other book too. And there you mention um, one theory of language. And it, it's kind of funny because um, recently I, I'm right, I want to write a book about Lenin. So I started to learn Russian. And so the one theory of language is that, like, basically, uh, languages are inherently translatable. It's just that they say the same thing with different sounds, which, yeah. but I actually don't believe that because with the way that Russian is structured, for example, yeah, I keep, like, in English, you can kind of leave off the object or the subject or get it confused. So when I say, I give Bob the book. Uh, yeah. The order matters, but in Russian you say "ya um, ya babu knigu da 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 you," and it doesn't even matter which way. You'll still know who gave whom the book. You know what I mean? Well, that's because it has a case system. It tells you which way round things are. Of course, it, yes, we have, 
we have the dative and the genitive and the accusative and stuff. So uh, yeah, um, I, I think I, I agree with you in that languages are more complicated and cannot be just directly translated like that. So um, can you talk a little bit more about what makes something a language? Okay, well, um, are you talking about the book I wrote on Noam Chomsky, Decoding I Chomsky? I, yeah, yeah, that's where I got the idea. But then in your book, you kind of talk about how languages, you need like a group of people. So the way a lot of linguists in, um, I guess, the modern times kind of try to study it. Okay. With, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, well, Noam Chomsky, as I'm sure you know, is the world's most um, influential uh, linguist. Mm-hmm. And... Um, He's regarded as a kind of Galileo, the, one of the greatest scientists of the European of world history, really. Oh, God, <laughs> yes, I know. I'm his, sorry. <laughs> and his theory is that um, language is a mini computer inside the head. There's a particular little, what's called, a, what he calls a module or, or um, competence inside the brain, a part of the brain. And that's language because it's, as I say, a, a, a small digital computer, if you like. And uh, he argues that language isn't for talking, it isn't for communicating, it's for computation. Uh, so the, so uh, his theory is that um, some kind of ape was wandering around in the past when there was a cosmic ray shower, and the radiation caused a mutation, and the mutation installed in the brain of this one individual, um, the language faculty, this little computer. Uh, and from that moment on, this individual um, had language, and, and therefore began to talk to itself. And that was it. And it carried on talking to itself and its descendants talked to themselves and no one was talking to anyone else. They were just doing computations in their head. But it did make them um, think more clearly. Uh, and it was only kind of an afterthought, very long time afterwards, that hunter-gatherers began to work out a way of what he calls externalizing language, using it to actually talk to other people and share thoughts. So his theory is utterly, utterly, utterly individualist. Language is just an individual competence inside the head, and you don't need anyone else. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it, really. Except but no, no, no. I, I just wanted you to talk about how language is the social aspect of language most people don't, I guess, understand. Are, are humans humans without our community? Because there's an idea of individualism in the West, but is it possible to... Is being in a community what makes us human? Well, evidently, that's what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that you have to turn everything upside down because, according to Chomsky, and he's not, Chomsky's just not any old individual, he's the number one linguist, he says that language is nothing whatever to do with community. He thinks it's just a purely individual thing, which he calls I language. And uh, French, German, Russian, and all these things, he's not interested in those. He calls them e-languages, by which he means external languages. And he's, he says that really... Um, all any Martian, any coming from outer space, coming from maybe from Mars and looking at humans, would, would say, well, all humans speak the same language, call it human, um, because they all have the same little computer inside their heads for doing comp- computations. Um, so, I mean, Isha, I don't know what, I'm not quite sure <laughs> what oh, no. questions you're asking. If you want to know what I think. I uh, want to know what I'm, you think. Of, no, no, I want to uh, see. Okay, is one language, okay. What makes a language a language and how much of the language is dependent on culture is what I wanted to lead to. Okay, well, language is entirely dependent on culture. So let me just say, um, all humans are born with what you might call a language instinct. Now, what I mean by that 
and I think this is indisputable. If if you've had children or know little kids, you'll be amazed how somewhere between the age of one and age of two, every little child will will be able to quickly master the what's probably the most complex theoretical structure that exists, which is the grammar of a language, be it Russian. Uh, you know, English, whatever it is, the child seems to have no problem mastering this grammar. Whereas a chimpanzee, it doesn't matter how much you try to teach it sign language, English, British sign language, American sign language, it finds it incredibly difficult. So humans don't have to learn language the way we learn algebra or learn not to put your finger in an electric plug (laughs) or something like that. Um, we, we take to it naturally. So there is, there is a language instinct. We are born with a, a capacity, al- almost an appetite, really. In fact, I would say an appetite to, to speak, to, to acquire the language from our community. But of course, what we acquire is cultural. So whether it's Russian or French or whatever it, language it is, is clearly coming from the community. And a child who is deprived of any community won't acquire language, won't be able to speak. And there's some very sad examples of children who've been abused and locked up in a room and not given any communication. Who and then, and then they may be discovered when they're eight, when they're nine or ten or something, and, and they they've got ex- they find it very difficult to learn to speak at all because they you need to learn the grammar of your first language at a young age. You know, not later than maybe you know eighteen months or you know three years old. That's that's when a huge amount of language acquisition takes place. So it's natural as well as cultural. Okay, so you devote a good two chapters about the like the hunter-gatherers culture or their habits, and you also critique somebody by the name of Levi Strauss. So can you talk a little bit about what exactly is totemism and what that means, and also <laughs> what is the how do hunters work, and do we work with the own kill method, like just uh, give us a little overview. <laughs> it's very hard to give a little overview because give us um, a big overview then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> the big overview will take you know a few weeks, but anyway, I'll do my best. Okay. okay. Um, so when a chimpanzee hunts, mm-hmm. it's mostly the males who hunt, and and chimpanzee males in you know in in say the Congo, you know Af- rainforests in Africa. They will hunt for monkeys, and they particularly like to catch um, colobus monkeys. These monkeys are quite high up in the trees, and it's the male chimpanzees who do it. And they look for a young colobus monkey, and, and they try to isolate it from its mother, and they, they, they might try to catch it. Several different chimpanzees will surround mm-hmm. the, the, you know, where they think the young um, monkey is and stop it from escaping. And then what happens is that um, because the chimpanzees aren't very good at killing the little monkey, they start to eat it anyway. One chimpanzee will be eating the arm while another's eating the leg. And they sort of pull it apart, pull it apart, and it gradually, the animal gradually dies. And another feature is that it's almost entirely the males who are mobile enough because they're not hampered by suckling babies or, or children. The, the males are the mobile sex, if you like, and they get to the meat first. You know, so the, the, the meat, which is acquired by hunting, doesn't really get to the females the female chimpanzees at all. So it's like they they kill and they immediately start to eat even before the animal is dead. So I noticed that with hunter-gatherers, everything is exactly the reverse of all that. So when a hunter, say, I mean, the people I know best would be the Hadza, lived with them for a short period, but my friends have lived with them for much longer and, and done fieldwork with the Hadza. These are bow and arrow hunters, 
who live in Tanzania uh, to this day, and they hunt large game animals. And what will happen is the hunters will will hunt will kill an animal, and they will not eat it out in the bush. They will they will bring it back to the camp and surrender the meat to uh, the women. Uh, there are various there's some complicated rules of sharing. I won't go into all the complications, but essentially, a woman among the Hadza won't fancy a man who's lazy or selfish or won't go hunting. For, for women, uh, you know, a man, they, you know, they like the body, they like sex and all that stuff as, as, <laughs> as we do. We like each other physically. But for, for a hunter-gatherer woman, she's, she just doesn't fancy somebody who's lazy and useless and selfish. She just doesn't, you know, whereas a man who's, who can cooperate with his, with his brothers, with his mates, and bring back a zebra, well, that's really, really sexy. So this means that when men go hunting, they're not really going hunting because they want food. They're going hunting to prove they are men in the Aha! eyes of. So a man who wants to have a good time with the women, he better he better prove that he's a, a, a brave as well as a generous hunter and come back now and again with some meat. Now I call that the own kill rule. In other words, that you don't eat your own kill because it would be stupid. Because if a men were to eat their own kill, they wouldn't get any sex, would they? No. So, so, but the point is there, the women, to make that rule work, the women have got to be quite careful not to, keep, not to just have sex with any, any old person. They've got to make sure that any man who's useless or lazy or violent or harasses them, the, 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 men, the women have got to gang up against him and refuse to allow him sex. Ah. Now, now, I call that the sex strike, so you'll find all through my book. Yep. It's, I, it's called the sex strike. And the sex strike isn't a theory. Everyone... My critics, they say, oh, Chris, you've got an interesting theory. And I say, well, it's not really a theory, is it? It's just what happens. Because <laughs> it, it's, it's not a theory, it's what happens. Women, there's a, the main economic system of hunter-gatherers is called bride service. And this means that a man never gains conjugal rights in his wife. A man, if he wants, uh, you know, if he wants sex, he's a young man, he's getting interested in, in girls. He's got to go out, prove himself a hunter, come back with the meat. And then he's got to continuously provide meat, you know, month after month, week after week, being generous, giving that meat, not to his own um, family, but to his sweetheart and her mum. So he's got to surrender that meat. And doesn't matter how long he lives, he will never say, right, I've given you lots of meat, so now you're my wife and I can have sex with you. He never gains conjugal rights in his wife. She can always say, right, I'm fed up with you. And I remember just talking to one of my Hadza friends, the Hadza of these bone arrow hunters, and he just kind of good-humouredly laughed and joked about it. I said, well, what happens if you've just got married and your, and your partner just, she decides she's fed up with you? She said, well, that can easily happen. <laughs> you cannot, they don't even have marriage, really. It's not, they never have a wedding, a formal wedding like that. It's just a, you know, a man brings back some meat. He fancies the girl. She fancies him. He has to put up with a bit of a drubbing from her mum, probably. To, she needs to test that he's serious and he might, he might, she might cause him some, some, you know, might sort of throw him out of the hut for a bit and, make sure that he's, he's, he's serious. But um, the critical point is that he never gains sexual rights. A man never has rights, sexual rights in the woman. The, the women always can fall back on their sisters and mothers and say no. And, and this friend of mine among the hats, he just said, you know, I can be, I can, I can got a wife today and then tomorrow she can say, right, I'm fed up. You know, off you go, I'm going to look for someone else. And there's nothing a man can do about it. And that's something like that is the rule for what we call egalitarian or immediate return hunter-gatherers. That's, those are hunter-gatherers who don't practice property and storage. Hunter-gatherers who, as we were originally, hunt 
and gather and 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 consume their the what they what they forage for what they acquire you know quickly instead of instead of piling up great stores of accumulated wealth when you store accumulated wealth inevitably that leads to one or two people monopolizing how that wealth is distributed and then you start to get um, social hierarchy so so I know but you asked about totemism mm-hmm. uh, okay so totemism is a word used in classical anthropology um, and it describes the fact that um, hunter-gatherers will extend their kinship relationships to animals so when I say kinship you, you I mean you, the kinship system means you, you describe this person as mother this is mother-in-law this is your father these are your aunts your sisters your brothers you can have sex with your people you call wife but people you call mother-in-law you absolutely mustn't have sex with <laughs> and all that stuff and what hunter-gatherers do the same system that decides who you can have sex with and who you can't have sex with, they apply to the animals as well. So the animals are all brought into the framework of a kinship system. Um, and in a way, that's totemism, the idea that animals are kin. I, I could stop there. I could go on and on and on for as long as you no, like. I actually have a question about the sex drive because that also brings me back to something very interesting. So collective action, as in every people who belong to the same class of class or I guess gender or community to like in, uh, in a group decide that they're going to go on a strike um, and often it seems like the mo- not, not modern but the western anthropologists often kind of suggest that like solidarity is some kind of an unnatural thing imposed as opposed to a natural thing so can you speak a little bit about it Well, uh, I mean, that's a very uh, strange idea that solidarity is unnatural. I mean, the whole of modern Darwinism, when I say modern Darwinism, I'm talking about what's, called, what's sometimes called selfish gene Darwinism. Mm-hmm. The, the, the reason selfish gene Darwinism was invented in the 70s was to explain solidarity, to explain cooperation, because you, you might think that Darwinism means dog-eat-dog, or it's just competition, but we need to explain why, even in the animal world, never mind the human world, We find so much courage, self-sacrifice, solidarity, cooperation in the animal world. And the, the explanations, were, I won't go into them all now, but a gene um, needs to replicate itself, and it can replicate itself in different ways. But if, um, because the same genes will be spread around in different individuals if they're related, if you sacrifice your own life or risk your own life for your brother or your sister or your children, you're actually helping your, your genes to get into the future. And the whole, the whole point of a gene is that it's designed to get through death, get into the future. So you can argue that on this amazing planet of ours, uh, this living planet, life works on this principle of immortality through death. That's the whole point of life. It, 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 it uses death as one of its mechanisms for self-preservation. Death is part of the process, of course. So, um, so all animals have elements of solidarity and so on. So, I mean, you know, I don't know, um, when, 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 all right, these, when these chimpanzees I was mentioning earlier, when they hunt colorless monkeys, the male colorless monkeys are incredibly brave in trying to rescue the offspring that have been threatened by a chimpanzee. They will mob the chimps. They will, they will take very severe risks, as, of course, the mothers will as well, for the sake of their offspring. And so... When it, so many different animals, if you try and attack them, they'll all come together in solidarity to protect the, one another and their, and their babies. Um, but, but, so now, now I'm talking about something slightly different, 
which is gender solidarity. Again, I mean, that's just such a clear example of solidarity. And, and again, it's kind of everywhere. So um, even with Langa monkeys in India, okay, so in that, Sarah Hurdy, this wonderful anthropologist who's, who, who discovered um, alloparenting or discovered the fact that we are the babysitting apes, she first studied Langa monkeys and she was wondering why um, every now and again a male would come in and kill the babies. And she worked out the reason. It's because the male wasn't the father of those particular babies. And only if you, if you kill the babies would those females stop breastfeeding because the baby was dead and come back into estrus, in other words, become fertile again, so that this new male could get them all pregnant so that his genes would get into the future. But the critical point there is that the females, they didn't collude with this at all. The females didn't want their babies to be killed and would support each other, ganging up against this in infanticidal male to fight him away. So that's already solidarity in monkeys. And of course, with humans, if a woman's attacked by a male, other women who are around, well, of course they'll, I mean, with hunter-gatherers, it's, it's very well known that, you know, any man who misbehaves, who's drunk, who tries to beat up a woman, he will very quickly find he's got like 10, 20, 30 women, um, you know, <laughs> just making life very, very, very difficult. For him, and um, you know, and they're, and they're not shy about what weapons they'll use. Their saucepans or their logs, their, their fists. I mean, they will really give him a hard time until he behaves. So, um, female solidarity against male um, harassment and aggression is—you'll find it everywhere. Where males aren't sufficiently despotic to isolate females and terrorize them. Okay, um, this actually brings me a very interesting point, and uh, Janet. Okay, so Janet lives in Boston, and I live in New York. Sorry if this is too much information. Um, but uh, when, when we started working together, uh, even though um, she lives in Boston and I live in New York, we started um, thinking up our periods magically, and, and I don't know how. And I didn't even think it was possible over Zoom, but apparently it can. But anyways, um, so this is a very interesting feature because... When I, and this is not the only time I've noticed this. Whenever I live with a roommate, boom, it happens. When you get a, uh, when when you uh, when you move in with uh, cousins, it doesn't matter who. It's always like within like a week or so. All no matter when you had your last period, you all sync up. What and you, and you talk about this in a chapter. And so, can you explain why this happens and what is its purpose? And then the second thing is. What is the advantage of having hidden um, ovulation as opposed to uh, animal that goes into visible heat? Okay, uh, all very good questions. So many primates, many monkeys, baboons would, would be, hamadryas baboons would, or gelato baboons would be an example. You have one male, an alpha male, who controls access to a whole harem of females. And where that happens, you can be pretty sure the females don't really need that male for anything other than his sperm. So the females kind of need a male because otherwise you won't get pregnant, you won't have babies. But it may be that the male doesn't provide anything else, just sperm. And the point about sperm is that it's quite cheap to produce. Mm -hmm. um, a little goes a long way. And a whole bunch of females, maybe you know, 10, 12, 15 females, if he's got very good sperm, in other words, the kind of sperm which will make their, these females' babies into dominant males, in other words, sufficient aggression and dominance and all that stuff, they might as well get sperm from the same male. And the other males are then surplus to requirements. So when you have a one male harem system, one male with a monopolizing a whole lot of females, obviously that means that a lot of males are going to be 
excluded surplus to requirements. Now, with early hominins, we evolved in, a, in an interesting way. The first thing to happen about six million years ago, seven million years ago, we were living in um, sort of wetland areas, riverside marshes alongside uh, lakes, and needed to wade in water and began to be walking, moving along upright so as not to have your head under the water. And cutting a long story short, we became bipedal, which means we began to walk on two legs. And the, the result of that was it liberated the hands. If you're walking on two legs, you've got your hands free. And then males who've got their hands free can do useful stuff for females. For example, they can go and get food and bring it back. So when, in the course of time, evolving human females found that they could benefit from having males around, and the more males, the better, because the more males around, the more meat they could bring or the other, more other kinds of food they can bring then that meant they needed to change their strategy. Now, if you've got a one-male system, that the, the females need to save time on sex. So you need to say to the male when the correct time is, and so your body will produce a swelling or some other signal to indicate to the male, this is the time to get me pregnant. Um, and so the male will then, he wants to save time on sex as well because he wants to get this female pregnant and then this female pregnant. He doesn't want to waste time on any one female. So can you see what's happening? Each side, they're saving time on sex by pointing out when the correct moment is. And also, of course, the females shouldn't all want sex at the same time because then that male won't be able to cope. So they need to stagger their, their, their moments of fertility as well as signaling them very clearly. Now imagine a, a new situation where the females actually don't need just sperm, they want food. Well, now 10 males can bring 10 times as much food as one male. So food isn't like sperm. You can't say with food, a little goes a long way. The more, the better. And so the females need to do the opposite. Instead of saving time on sex, they need to be kind of wasting time on sex. In other words, having sex far more than you would need just to get pregnant. And instead of giving the male the correct information, you need to hide that information. So he hasn't a clue when to have sex because... You know, the females don't want him to know because there's always a danger the male might just get you pregnant and then go off and get somebody else pregnant, leaving you with a baby. So can you see what's happening now? Once females can benefit from having lots of males around, it makes sense for them to do these two things. One is synchronize and two is conceal. Synchronize the moments of, of, of fertility and two, uh, conceal the evidence that you're fertile at one moment rather than um, another. Now, once that's happened, once the um, obvious sign of ovulation has been phased out, in other words, once estrus has been phased out, what that does is it leaves menstruation as a, a very interesting signal for the male. So chimpanzees menstruate, but the males aren't very interested mm -hmm. in menstruation because they've got the far more exciting and interesting signal, which is the estrus swelling, which chimpanzee females have when they're fertile, the big, big swelling the size of a grapefruit, which absolutely fascinates the males. But imagine that's being phased out. It's not there anymore. The only signal which will give in the males information about the fertility status of a female will be menstruation. And then there's a danger that the same problem will arise. In other words, when, a, when in a group of females, one of them is menstruating, one of them, in other words, is signaling, in a moment, I'm going to be fertile. In a few days, maybe a couple of weeks, I'll be fertile. There's a danger that all the males will pile in on her because they'll be you know, wanting to get her pregnant. And so what happens is that the females take action, and as soon as the girl begins to menstruate, the females 
surround her, sing with her, dance with her, use ochre to paint up with her, and once again prevent the males from picking and choosing between females on grounds of their biological um, fertility. Now, linked with all that is another whole question, which is the synchrony. I've already described how if you want to be the harem and share a male with everybody else, because all you need is a sperm, and once you're pregnant, you want to get the hell out of there, you don't need a male anymore, then you need to be out of sync. But once you want to maximize the number of males you're in contact with, you need to synchronize, because by synchronizing, you make it impossible for one male to monopolize a harem. If everybody wants sex at the same time, the dominant male can't cope, and all the other males can enjoy sex. But now we're talking about moving on a bit to when you have menstruation, there are good reasons why menstruation would happen once a month. Um, so let me just explain. Chimpanzees, they have a cycle, but it's not lunar. It's not 29.5 days, the, the length of the cycle. It's 36 days. Bonobos have a, a cycle which is 40 days. Other primates have different lengths of cycle, but only in the human case do we have a, a, a menstrual cycle, which is exactly the length it takes for the moon to pass through its phases as seen from the Earth. Um, now, we evolved in Africa, and we, we co-evolved with very dangerous predators. At the time when we were just three-foot-high bipeds with very, you know, very you know, ineffective weapons, we were co-evolving with lions, and lions have brilliant night vision. They can see in the dark, and they prefer to hunt in the dark because then they can pounce up on you when you didn't see them. When the moon's in the sky, they, they don't do that. They can't be bothered because they know they can be seen. So every dark moon... The lions come out to hunt, and every full moon they retire. Ah! So, so it would make a lot of sense in the course of human evolution for males who want to go and visit a sweetheart somewhere else. Best thing is don't travel overnight at dark moon. If you want to travel overnight, choose full moon because the, then the lions are sort of, you know, they're not bothering. So you'll be safe. And so boys and girls come out to play. The moon does shine as bright as day. All the world's myths, songs, love songs, romantic poems. <laughs> Oh. Full moon with honeymoon and therefore with sex for that reason. So it made sense for us to change the length of the cycle to make it exactly the same length as the cycle of the moon. That makes so much sense. Um, now, things changed when humans started to have fire, right? And what happened there and how did uh, humans, I guess, what did acquiring fire do, I guess, to the culture? Okay, fine. That's a very good question. And I go into that a great deal, don't I, in the book? Um, okay, it's a very important transition. We're actually quite early. We seem to have domesticated fire to an extent, at any rate, several hundred thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. um, nobody knows quite the date because, uh, I mean, the, the, okay, the point really is that in, in Africa, fire is quite, wildfires are quite frequent. Every now and again, you get dry lightning and it sets the, the grass on fire. And chimpanzees, some, some chimpanzees live in the rainforest but others are called savannah chimpanzees and when there's a fire a prairie fire like a, you know a grass fire the chimps actually quite like that because the fire gets rid of the long grass it means they can see ahead more they can travel more freely and they can of course they can enjoy the cooked food there may be nuts and seeds and stuff which have been roasted in the fire or there may be little animals that have got kind of got cooked uh -huh. by the fire so these chimpanzees they don't seem to be scared of fire. They seem to be quite familiar with it. So that would be the origin of using fire with just making use of the wildfire. So right from the very earliest stages, our human ancestors would have done that. So the story really is how do we gain increasing control over 
fine. How do we manage to find the right part? I hear there are some cultures, at least in the Andaman Nicobar Islands in India, where they don't yet can start a fire, but they can continue a fire. So those are two separate skills, right? So the critical thing is how do you keep a fire going once it's alight? And of course, you need to be constantly caring for it. You can't be running around all over the place in, in thunderstorms and hope, hope to keep your fire alight. You've got to find a relatively dry spot, you know, under a, under a, a you know a cliff or under a you know very big tree, and just look after it, you know, continuously. So that's already telling us that the males, if the males are running around hunting, it wouldn't work to have them in charge of keeping the fire alight because keeping the fire going means you're relatively immobile. You've got to stick with the fire. So it makes sense for mothers with babies and older people to be looking after that fire and keeping it burning. But an, an important thing to consider is this thing I was mentioning earlier called the own kill rule. So before we had the own kill rule, in other words, before men were bringing back meat to a camp, the women in the group would have had to follow after the males and trailing after them wherever they went to, to go hunting and trying to get to the kill site and get a bit of a share of the meat where the, men, where the males were. That, I'm, now I'm talking about like really early stage of evolution. So before you could have domestic fire, before you could have controlled fire, you had to already have the sex strike because it's only the sex strike that, that alters the whole situation. So as I'm just trying to explain, the initial situation would be the, the females have to keep moving and moving and moving to keep up with the males who are, who are mobile because they, they're hunters. But what sex strike did, the fem- it's as if the females had decided, okay, instead of moving to follow the meat, Let's make the meat come to us by sticking here in one place and say to the males, you're not going to get any sex unless you come home with your meat. Mm. Now then, once that had happened, the women could be then in control of the fire and keeping it alight right through the whole year. And therefore, increasingly, our species would have adapted to um, meat, which was, and other food, tubers and stuff, which was cooked. And it was probably adapting to cooked food, which enabled our teeth to get a bit smaller. Okay, so humans have a special type of face, but we don't have a long protruding jaw with huge big canines and big teeth. And probably once we had um, year-round fire and and were able to rely year-round on food, um, which had already been cooked, we wouldn't have needed the huge muscles and jaws and teeth that other mammals, including our primate relatives, the great ape relatives, have. And we could, the, the, the size, the jaw could start retracting, the face could become much flatter and leave more room, actually, as well, for, this, for the brain to enlarge inside a, a skull, which was becoming increasingly, the, the word is globular, like a balloon shaped skull, which we have. Um, but that would come for a, num- a number of other reasons as well as that. But anyway, yes, cooking was very important. But it was the point about cooking is, Far too often, my colleagues in anthropology, they treat it as a technological breakthrough. Ah, we discovered fire because we were so clever. And I'm saying, well, actually, it depended on politics, on sexual politics. Until women had got themselves sorted and were themselves able to say no to males who came back without any meat, they couldn't have made sure that all the meat came back to camp. Now, once it did come back to camp, once men were bringing meat, you could have the the females could could develop something even more important, which was just... To, to emphasize that just as their menstrual bleeding marked their bodies as sacred and taboo, they could draw the same conclusion with the, with the meat which the men caught, because 
once blood is taboo, well, men kill animals and they bleed, and the blood is taboo. Ah! So the only way to remove that blood in the meat and, and render it edible is to take it home, because only the women at home have got the fire which can make that meat culturally edible by removing um, the visible blood. And that's a whole big theme in one of Levi-Strauss's um, books called The Raw and the Cooked. Animals eat their meat raw, they eat the meat while it's still bloody, whereas humans need to get their meat cooked. But to get it cooked, in my logic, the men would have needed to go back to the women because the women monopolized control of a fire. So all the men could do was produce the raw materials for food. The actual edible food was still monopolized by women. That's actually very interesting. So it kind of reminds me of like almost like a supply chain that came about later, much, 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 much That's later. Right. Um, so you also talk a little bit about how clothes came to be. Can you talk a little bit about it? Well, as soon as you've got sex strike, uh-huh. can you see, if, as soon as you've got a sex strike, you, you're, you're, as women, you're going to be concerned about each other. You don't want, if you're on a strike, you don't want one of your number saying, oh, I don't, give about, I don't care about solidarity. I'm going to go and have fun. I'm going to run after those men and have lots of sex and they're going to be nice to me. You, you want to say, no, 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 no. Your body isn't just yours. Your body's part of a community, a collective, a picket line, if you like. So wearing clothes is kind of part of all that. I mean, obviously, in some parts of the world, you don't wear clothes or you hardly wear any clothes, of course. And so what's, what counts as dressed and undressed depends on all kinds of cultural and, mm. and environmental yeah. factors, including how warm the weather is. But, um, but in all cultures, people, there's a thing called modesty for males and females, but possibly you know, it, it, it matters maybe more to, more to females if they're in some kind of um, framework of solidarity because, because you don't want to let the side down. So if the women are saying, right, no sex for now, it's kind of a bit paradoxical. There's no point having a sex strike if you're not sexy because it's like you want the women, you want the men to be interested, mm-hmm. but the signal you need to give to those males, if you want them to go away hunting and bring back some meat, you have to give the males is, yes, we're very sexy and we, we like sex, and, and you know, but not now um, because you haven't brought anything back. You, you, you need to make yourself helpful and useful um, first. But the point I'm making now is that as soon as you have that dynamic, women are going to be interested in one another's sexual behavior because certain kinds of sexual behavior would amount to scabbing, strike-breaking, being competitive at the, at the expense of everyone else, and other kinds of behavior mean that you, the, the people involved are aware that their sexual behavior has consequences for everybody. And so, therefore, a certain amount of covering or modesty or the way you hold yourself is important because... If you hold yourself or display your attractions in other ways, you could be letting the side down and let, getting the men to think that with a little bit of persuasion, you're going you're gonna to say, oh, sorry, I want some sex and never mind the hunt, never mind the, never mind the, the female community. So I think clothing, okay, obviously clothing is to do with keeping warm, but there's another side of clothing and that other side of clothing is about solidarity. That's a, that part for me was very interesting because no one ever mentions that. It's like, at least in much of the modern literature, clothing is kind of defined as something that males impose upon women, as opposed to what women use themselves. In. Well, that's, that's such a disgraceful turnaround of the truth. It's just like when people think of menstrual taboos as imposed by men. Yes, of course, in India and many parts of India, and other parts of the world, Mediterranean, of course, menstrual taboos are imposed by men. 
But you need to understand that that's the male, that's males translating in their own terms something which is originally women's need to establish some things are sacred, in particularly our bodies. And when we're bleeding, that blood marks our bodies as sacred. And yeah, that part was very interesting. And the blood taboo, it, it makes perfect sense because also uh, raw meat is much more dangerous to eat uh, than cooked meat. So it, it makes so much sense. So how did music or dance came to be, according to you? You speak about it in your book. Well, we now, we now know, okay, I mean, the, the, a lot of my information these days comes from my very close um, friends, uh, Ingrid and Jerome Lewis, who, who, who work with the Bayaka people in the Congo in Africa, hunter-gatherers. And they sing and sing and sing, and it's especially the women who sing, and especially they sing at dark moon. And, and um, Jerome said, oh, why do you sing all through the night? Why do you sing so passionately as if you're never going to get tired? And the women said to him, Jerome, we are singing for our lives. And what they mean by that is that when they're singing all through the night and dark moon, and remember what I said about dark moon, that's the time when the lions are on the prowl. So what the women say is that when the lion hears a bunch of women singing, the lion thinks twice about you know, intruding because it sounds like a, a very organized bunch of women and just five or six women sounds like 20 or 30 when they, div- when they perform this particular kind of singing, this polyphonic singing which African hunter-gatherers are so good at. Polyphonic means they have these different voices. They sort of reinforce each other. And uh, five or six women can sound like, you know, you don't want to mess with them. They're very well organized. So singing started out as keeping the predators away on dark nights. Um, But, of course, in order to keep going all through the night, you've got to have not just making some horrible cacophony, some horrible noise, which would be tiring. You need to have a kind of noise-making which is pleasing to the body and melodious and rhythmic, so that the lions get scared, but the humans feel the opposite. They feel empowered and bonded by this noise-making. So music always has that double edge. It's, if you think of military music, a marching army, they want the enemy to be scared, mm-hmm. but you want your own friends to be emboldened and uplifted by the sounds of the music. Yeah. So singing, singing started with that dual purpose, to keep safe um, from predators by, by making them you know, think twice about attacking you, uh, but at the same time, not just keep safe, but have a, have a really good bonding experience, which is part of keeping safe, of course, because when you're, when you're bonded, you're not going to be so likely to be attacked. The lions will, will, will probably look for somebody isolated to eat and attack in the night. For a whole, whole bunch of women all in a big circle singing together, the, the lion wouldn't dream of, of, of messing. So it's like a don't mess with us message. And even to this day in Africa, it's overwhelming the women who do the singing. Okay, and when did men started to do some singing? <laughs> I'm sure the men would always have mothers and sisters who are singing, and I'm not saying the men wouldn't do it. Uh-huh. But the men in the forest, when the men are out hunting, they don't want to make a noise because whereas the women want to keep the animals away, the men want the animals to come so they can hunt them. So the men do the opposite, really. They, 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 they talk in the language of the birds. They communicate with each other using a kind of silent sign language. And that's just because... The women with the babies, they want the animals to keep away, whereas the, the, the men, when they go hunting, they want the opposite. They want the, the, the animals not to be afraid. They want the animals not even to know they're there. So when the men communicate, they use the language of the birds, the frogs, the different animals, so that the, the animals can't even hear them. They just think it's some, some natural noise from the forest. Oh, that makes a lot of 
sense. And I, I, I see for me, the things like what is natural is completely opposite of what conventional or Western conventional wisdom tells you. Um, yeah. Sorry. So um, now, um, can we move a little forward towards the Ice Age? Um, and how did humans adapt for the Ice Age, even though our bodies are not exactly the most adaptable? Well, um, it depends which part of the world you're talking about. I mean, in Africa, the Ice Ages in Europe, would, down in Africa, would have corresponded to periods of, of dry. So it would be slightly different and not necessarily very cool, but certainly very dry. So it depends where you, where you talk about. I imagine you're talking about Europe with the Ice Age. So, uh, 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 I'm, okay, I'm, I'm, I was trying to get to the uh, transition to the rainbow snake, uh, which is very interesting. Um, so, okay. so yeah, okay. I, I must so, have asked the wrong question. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's okay. I, I, I'm not at all saying you're asking the wrong question. I'm, I'm saying that the Ice Age, you have, you have a long period um, of glacials followed by interglacials, like warm periods and cold periods alternating in, in a sort of cycle, which we now kind of understand from astronomy. But all I'm saying is that, that how cold it got or how warm depended on which, you know, on the latitude, whether how far you were away from the equator. Um, but but that's, that, you know, that's fine. So um, humans began, modern humans, that's Homo sapiens, began moving out from Africa probably about 60,000, 70,000 years ago. And in Europe, around 45,000 years ago, that led to what we were talking about earlier, the Upper Paleolithic Revolution, which is still very, very much in the Ice Age, a very cold part of the Ice Age, got colder and colder, actually. Um, but, it, but also humans, of course, moved across uh, Asia into what's now India. Even to Australia. And, and, and uh, the Andaman Island peoples are... Well, so, just curious, um, how exactly did those early humans get all the way down to Australia? <laughs> it seems kind of far. They went along the coast. They, they love the coast. They love the shorelines. Much, much more um, resource-rich, those shorelines, those estuaries. And they, of course, they needed fresh water. So and then you can get fish, too. Fish, shellfish, hunts for seals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and of course, they needed fresh water. So you'd have to be where a river flowed into the sea. But then around there, there'd be extremely lush lilies, bulbs, waterfowl, eggs, I mean, all sorts of stuff to, to eat. And so in northern Australia, um, like Arnhem Land, western Arnhem Land places, it's still the place where people congregate most densely. So the densest populations of Aboriginal Australians when they reached Australia, um, they would have been, you know, around the coasts. And then we had the end of the Ice Age around... Um, you know, around 10,000 years ago. Um, so the glaciers melt, the sea levels rise. Australia comes, gets isolated from greater Australia, what's now um, Papua New Guinea and, and, and Indonesia. Um, and, um, and so, okay, so now we want to talk about the rainbow snake. That's, that's good. Okay, so the, the, the rainbow snake, uh, okay, my way of explaining it is this. So imagine you have a landscape where everybody's synchronizing in the way I described. So women's, women synchronize their periods with the moon. And so you have a period of full moon where women are ovulating and, and there's lots of sex happening. And now another period, a dark moon, where the women are menstruating. And if they're not menstruating, they're with each other. Some of them are menstruating. They're covering themselves with ochre and blood and so on. So every dark moon, there's no marital sex. So there's no sisters, no husbands. Everyone's a brother or a sister. 
But every full moon, all the brothers turn into husbands, all the sisters turn into wives, and you get this metamorphosis. Now, imagine a missionary arriving in Australia and saying to these people, well, you have this thing which you call the great mother. Whose mother is it? And they'll say, well, it's, it's, it's all the mothers. The mothers are linked up. They have menstrual synchrony. Women are synchronizing their periods. And so our mother is linked up with her sisters and her sisters and her sisters. And every dark moon, our mothers are joined together in this line of blood stretching right across uh, the landscape. But every full moon, this line of blood um, disappears and the blood turns to fire because the, meat, the, the meat's been cooked, the blood has been removed from the meat. Everyone's now moving away from being a brother and a sister into enjoying the now consumable, edible flesh, both animal and human. Uh, and then at next dark moon, we resume the whole cycle again. So somebody says, all right, some missionary, okay, how big is this thing? And they say, well, it doesn't make sense as how big it is. It's right across the landscape. It says, you know, it's, it's, it's just, I don't know, it's like a snake right across them, but a very, very long snake. And, they, and so the missionary says, well, what, what color is it? And he says, well, it's blood red, but it's, you know, it's, uh, how big is it? Oh, this is, I don't know, how high is it? And, and so, they, 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 you know, the Aborigines are trying to explain to this rather ignorant European missionary about this thing, which is meant ritualized menstrual synchrony. So they say it's like a rainbow because it's cyclical. It's got this red color. It comes in between the rain and the sun, in between the full moon and the dark. It's like a mother, but it's like, the all mother it's a kind of monster because every every dark moon this blood swallows us all up in menstrual synchrony we all become as one as if we're all under the same skin of this great snake but then every, every full moon the snake dissolves and we all get regurgitated from the snake so anyway even even after all those explanations i'm afraid the missionaries never really understood it oh yeah and even today even today they think it maybe they found a dinosaur bones or maybe there really was a very big snake up there, some kind of python, which sort of <laughs> creature. And it's just complete nonsense. The rainbow snake is um, a way of describing, in metaphor, uh, a ritual phenomenon, a, you know, a form of solidarity. And it's the same thing as the dragon. So in Indian myths, in Japanese, Korean, Chinese myths, and you know, European, Russian myths, when, he, when a patriarch um, establishes his patriarchal power, what does he do? He rescues a maiden from the many-headed dragon. The many-headed dragon is, is just the same as the rainbow snake. Why has it got many heads? Because lots and lots of different women are connected up with each other. What does the patriarch do? He has to so-called rescue, in other words, detach this woman, isolate her from her kin, from her support, in order to make the world safe for marriage and the family. So the many-headed dragon is none other than female menstrual solidarity. Amazing. Um, one final question, though. Um, so in the beginning of the book, you say that science, as it always has been, is information which gives us power. And there's yeah. like two kinds of trains of thought about science. One is that it's somehow neutral. It's just data. And the other is that science is politicized to help those in power stay in power. Um, and I think in your book, you've made a wonderful case about how science is the latter. So I guess, how does somebody confront all these contradictions within this world? And how does one understand science, I guess? Oh, Weisha, you ask such difficult questions. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You ask such profound, challenging questions. Um, but anyway, I thank you for asking that question. 
Um, when I say science, it's information which gives us power. Let me just give you a, a, a silly example, really, but it's kind of a classic example. Scientifically, water is H2O. And I remember in the physics lessons I used to do as a, in school, you, if you electrolyze water, you pass an electric current through water and you collect the gases which come off, you get two volumes of hydrogen for every one volume of oxygen. And the point I would make is that that will apply whether you're black or white, male or female, Hindu or Muslim, Protestant or Catholic, it just knowing that gives you power. Knowing, knowing that water is H2O, I mean, obviously it depends what kind of thing you're doing, you know, whether you want to do physics, chemistry in some, you know, industrial process or something, but knowing that water is H2O is kind of empowering whoever you are. That's it. And I'm, what I'm saying is that the same applies to social science, anthropology, astronomy, and all these other forms of science. If it's genuine science, it gives you power, whoever you are. But, of course, you can also have what I call ideology. So Hindu nationalism, oh God. Narendra Modi or somebody, or some horrible person like Bolsonaro in Brazil, they will be telling you various things about how the world is. They'll be saying climate change is a myth. Um, the rainforest um, needs to be burned down to make room <laughs> for American beef burgers. Now, the point about that is you can say, well, is it science? And it's no good just saying, no, no, of course not. But on what basis are you saying it's not science? Because he's got his view, I've got my view, you've got your view. And the point I would make is very simple. It's just like, is the view that the rainforest needs to be burnt down to make room for hamburgers, beef burgers, how empowering is that? And who does it empower? Well, it obviously doesn't empower people in most of the world. It empowers certain people who think they've just got to eat beef, otherwise they're not real men. Uh, and it empowers fascists. I mean, okay, or, and, you know, maybe that's a bit strong, but I mean, all I'm saying is where a form of knowledge, so-called knowledge, you know, empowers only white people or only rich people or whatever it is, or only the property classes or only the corporations, then quite clearly it is not science. In order to qualify as science, it has to be what I say in that book. Science is knowledge which confers us with power. By us, I mean all of us, humans, without distinction. My anthropology, I think, empowers us with power because it means that we, humans, <laughs> whoever we are across the planet, we can gain understanding and power from knowing what I wrote about in the book, that human culture was produced in a revolution, uh, that we won the revolution once, therefore we can win it again. But this revolution brought women together. Women were empowered through, you know, discovering their solidarity. The menstrual cycle isn't just randomly there and just so by coincidence happens to be exactly the same length as the moon. It's part of the solidarity. And all those things mean you can understand fairy tales, myths. You can understand different traditional cultures. It gives us power as a species. Um, so therefore, I'm saying... It's science. And you can test it. You can just say, right, well, do you feel empowered by this? I mean, I would say to you, Isha, you feel empowered by it, apparently. Yeah. But just, what, what I'm saying is try it out. Try it out on other women. Try it out on other people who aren't white and people who are white, of course. And, you know, just but if it, if it starts to empower people irrespective of their position in society, how wealthy they are, what colour their skin is, then it's science. If, it, if intrinsically, for intrinsic reasons, it only empowers a narrow section of society, then quite clearly... It's ideology. And I'm against ideology. I'm in favor of science. So is there like a um, thing that is related to our comprehension and power? Because 
often it seems like people in power don't actually comprehend people not in power, but people not in power comprehend or understand or take. Is there a connection between that? My own view is that when I was, well, I was talking earlier about what makes us human cognitively, and we call it intersubjectivity. It means your mind includes my mind when we're talking with each other. You know, I know what's in your mind. I represent your thoughts and my thoughts. You represent my thoughts and your thoughts. And that's called intersubjectivity. It's very hard to do that where there's inequality. It's very hard for me to be sympathetic enough and empathetic enough with somebody who is abusing me or dominating me to be able to really internalize their thinking. I can sort of guess what they're doing in order to oppose them, but I'm not sympathetically relating to them. So what I'm saying is that the thing which makes us human, which is intersubjectivity, and there's no doubt that intersubjectivity is one of the conditions for the development of language. It works when we're equal, whether we have severe inequalities, it doesn't work. But the fact that we have intersubjectivity, that our minds are designed like that, and the fact that we have language and therefore can share our dreams and thoughts and plans and memories with each other, that to me shows that we evolved under conditions of egalitarianism, gender egalitarianism, as well as social and political egalitarianism. And that in turn means that we went through a revolution, a liberating revolution, Uh, And for me, the reason why that's inspiring is because it tells us that revolution is possible. And I might sum up by simply saying, it's good to know that we won this revolution. It means that having won it once uh, is part of who we are, and we should be able to win the revolution again. Hopefully. Well, thank you so much for coming. And are you working on any other books or anything else for the near future? A good question. I'm now writing with my friend Jerome Lewis a book called when Eve laughed, that's Adam and Eve, when Eve laughed, the origins of language. Oh, that's great. So it's about laughter and the origins of language. And Isha, I'd be very privileged if you would um, stay with us and help us to write the book. We've we've more or less two-thirds written it, but what we now want is some people like yourself to have a look at it and uh, suggest any things which would make it more accessible and readable to people like you. Very, very, very intelligent people who are perhaps a bit new to anthropology, but we're on the same wavelength. So it'd be, I've, I'd be honoured if you would help us out. I, I would be honoured too. Um, like I said, it's funny because I, I came to your you from your other book, Decoding Chomsky. All my friends say, Chris, why did he waste 15 years writing a book on that dead, boring geezer, Noam Chomsky? Well, you could have written another book on myths and fairy tales and language and stuff. And I, the trouble is, um, Isha, I, 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 when I finished Blood Relations, I didn't really want to write any more books. I wanted to organise the revolution itself. Uh-huh. Uh, I thought that's the, that's the proof of the pudding. That's how the, the book will be vindicated by putting it all into practice. Um, so I never really wanted to write. I mean, you know, in, in the Blood Relations, I never really got round to language in any detail. And part of it was because I wanted to organize, help organise the revolution. Uh-huh. But also it was because I felt, in order to write a book on language, I've got to get my head around this stuff by this geezer, uh, Noam Chomsky, who everyone praises as the greatest anarchist thinker in all time. Oh, oh my great- God. Yesterday, I saw an article that called him like a his political historian. And uh, he misses like, well, there are like, he just misses basic facts in history so much. It's shocking. <laughs> so I'm just saying, I 
felt I had to get my head around Chomsky and I ended up spending far too long on that book on Chomsky. But I'm glad you read it, if only because it turned you on to the, the much more important book, which is Blood Relations, Menstruation and the Origins of Culture. And it's lovely to have spoken with you, Isha. Yep. And please um, email me uh, whatever you want and I'd love to read it and give you feedback. Okay. Uh, thank you. Well, have a great day. Bye-bye. Okay. Goodbye then. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.